In healthcare, there are many transformative leaders. The most remarkable leaders don't just dare greatly to drive improvements, they also care greatly. They bring compassion and humanity to the work of leading transformation. This is their podcast. Mr. Jeremy Siegel is Assistant Vice President and System Chief Wellness Officer at New York City Health and Hospitals, the largest municipal public health system in the U.S. Mr. Siegel started his career in healthcare as a licensed creative arts therapist, moving from there into system process improvement and eventually into his current role as Chief Wellness Officer. In this role, he oversees team member wellness and resilience, process improvement, and patient experience. In addition to his responsibilities as CWO at New York City Health and Hospitals, Mr. Siegel was the coordinator of the Healing, Education, Resilience, and Opportunity for New York's Frontline Workforce Task Force, or HERO New York, bringing together the U.S. Department of Defense, Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, New York City Health and Hospitals, New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, and the Fire Department of the City of New York to create a five-part Train the Trainer series based on military expertise in addressing trauma, stress, resilience, and wellness to be adapted for civilian audiences to support the mental health and well-being of frontline workers affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, Mr. Siegel and I talk about the interconnectedness of wellness and process improvement, particularly at this time when team members have experienced such intense stress and trauma and when staffing shortages are rampant. We delve into the need to integrate well-being into the daily work and operations of the health system so that team members have a chance to debrief and begin healing from stressful events without needing to carve out additional time. Finally, Mr. Siegel lays out a vision for the future that rethinks the role of wellness and resilience as a core leadership responsibility. Mr. Jeremy Siegel is a leader who cares greatly. Welcome, Mr. Siegel. Thank you so much for joining me today. Liz, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for for having me. I'm really excited to delve into this topic. Uh, You are the Chief Wellness Officer at New York City Health and Hospitals. Can you describe your role for people who aren't familiar with it, as well as a little bit about how you personally came to that role? Absolutely. Uh, Thanks. I think that's a really good question. While we've seen the Chief Wellness Officer or CWO role really become more popularized over the last five, six years, um, we at NYC Health and Hospitals, which is the largest public health care delivery system in the United States, uh, we took a little bit of a different angle at looking at what wellness looks like and what um, different departments or divisions need to kind of be working in tandem to ensure that workforce wellness and resilience building uh, of the staff is a success. Uh, So generally, uh, the Chief Wellness officer is about leading, planning, developing, and implementing, as well as monitoring uh, wellness and resilience uh, building programming initiatives while creating awareness for wellness and providing tools and resources to all employees uh, to help them maintain a balanced and healthy lifestyle. Uh, But here at NYC Health and Hospitals, um, it's really us taking a look at it from an enterprise-wide level um, to make sure that we have system-wide performance improvements supporting the well-being of the workforce, uh, which is really bringing in uh, the model for change, model for improving PDSA cycles, lean or Six Sigma, uh, whichever anyone is really um, fluent in or or has expertise in to really be looking at system processes in place, not only for patient well-being and the higher 
quality and safety care that we deliver for them to, to enhance that, uh, but to also make sure that our workforce isn't bogged down uh, with those same processes. Um, it's also part of my role looking at staff wellness by emotional and psychological response efforts, which over the course of the last 16, 17 months uh, throughout the pandemic is now aligning to eight dimensions of well-being. And then also as part of my role as CWO uh, is patient wellness via engagement and satisfaction strategy. Um, so we really look at all enterprise-wide mission critical quality improvement projects to align to system well-being. Um, and it's really about supporting the organization's strategic initiatives, which wellness is absolutely uh, one of them. Uh, in addition, uh, really uh, supporting what's known as our wellness programming, Helping Healers Heal program to continuously improve over time, uh, as well as to um, support person-centered certifications, uh, as well as our eye care customer service values for our system. So our values support our mission and vision for the system across all service lines. Um, and uh, so that's a little bit more about my role. How did I come <laughs> to it? Um, well, I came to it as a frontline clinician. So I started my career at NYC Health and Hospitals about 11 years ago as a licensed creative arts therapist. I specialize in drama therapy. Um, so creative arts therapies, in case people are wondering, uh, is a licensed psychotherapeutic practice in the state of New York and several other states across the nation and internationally. Uh, and it just uses art mediums, movement, uh, art, music, poetry, and drama, as I mentioned, um, for the assessment and intervention with, with patients or clients or residents. Uh, so I was doing that with inpatient populations uh, for uh, over four years uh, and privately. And um, what I came to understand is that it's really important to take a look at system health and system well-being. Mm. So I got very uh, much involved in behavioral health service transformation, which brought me from frontline but working with behavioral health uh, in our lean management department, which is how I got my first taste of performance improvement. Uh, and then I was in performance improvement at uh, one of the facilities uh, for about seven years in quality management before I came to our corporate central office and was doing system-wide PI. Um, and then throughout the pandemic, um, I was already uh, coming from behavioral health services, was doing system implementation of large scale projects across our service lines. So when uh, our new administration with Dr. Mitchell Katz and Dr. Eric Way, who's our chief quality officer, when they came over, one of the first initiatives was Helping Healers Heal, which was to provide psychological safety for all of our frontline workforce members, clinical, non-clinical management, and leadership. Um, in order to do so, um, we wanted to initiate, um, at first, almost a rapid response team for, for second victimization. And then the Helping Healers Heal program really evolved over time. And then once the pandemic hit, um, the program was already supporting second victimization, vicarious traumatization, compassion fatigue, and burnout. But then, of course, we wanted to move into crisis response and emergency management uh, approaches to well-being. Um, and because I was positioned in that, um, I eventually became the chief wellness officer. <laughs> so so a very straightforward path. But what I like about what you just shared is, is a couple of things. First is the, you know, to, there's so much creativity required to be able to do this kind of job because as much as identifying the evidence-based practices, there's the art of getting people to engage in it and adopt in them. So that I'm guessing that background helps you a lot but also the process improvement component, I think is so important and what, what causes a lot of people to dismiss the area of well-being think, and frontline clinicians even when they look at it and say, well, it's the work that's killing me and now you want me to do some wellness thing over on the side, but fundamentally the integration of needing to, to potentially change the work and then integrate well-being into the work as part of performance improvement, I think is, is so critical. So I imagine that that serves you really well. 
It absolutely has. And, you know, when we're talking about wellness, we need to remember that there's a, a macro and a micro approach to well-being from an individual basis, a unit uh, or, 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 you know, specific work environment level, a service line, facility-wide and or system-wide. So when looking at wellness initiatives, you really want to take a look at that. So what systemically can we be improving for the front lines to be able to do their job uh, without additional burden and stress, knowing that it's already hard to work across the landscape of healthcare, um, emotionally, psychologically, physically. Mm -hmm. So how can we ensure that we're really looking at our processes in place to not uh, add additional uh, stress? Um, um, we also really want to remember that often people dismiss wellness uh, or care experience um, because it's not quote unquote tangible. You can't mm. necessarily touch it. And that's why it's so important to always talk about the business case of wellness, which is the healthier our staff are, the more engaged that they will be, and the more engaged that they are, the higher quality and safe care we'll be able to provide, which translates to patient experience, which is market share, reputation, reimbursement rates, things of, of that nature. You can have an impact on wellness um, through using performance improvement principles by empowering the staff to utilize their voice to say what will help them feel better while in their own work environment and to get them engaged in it. Um, so you absolutely uh, can see performance improvement come more into this realm of well-being. I, I think that's a, a beautiful encapsulation of how it all fits together. One of the challenges that's particularly arisen from the pandemic is that there's currently a shortage of available licensed workers, particularly for clinical positions, but across a lot of different positions. And so teams are short staffed. And this is happening when team members are trying to recover from the enormous stress and distress of the pandemic. And when they're short staffed and therefore stressed, they need access to wellness resources more than ever. And yet it can feel like they can't access them because they don't have time, they're too busy, et cetera. How do you manage that paradox with people right now? Really great, great points and, and very good question. Um, you know, speaking very frankly, uh, and this is not just an NYC health and hospitals challenge when speaking with other chief wellness officers across the nation is those that we wanted to access and utilize our well-being or resilience resources were the ones that had the hardest time. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not a shock that right now there's a healthcare shortage across the nation uh, and throughout the different peaks and waves of the surges, we really saw uh, it, it morph across our nation um, and where services needed to be sent, uh, those in the EDs, in the IC use in the med surge COVID overflow hot zone units, um, they weren't able to get off the floors or to join the virtual support groups or to even step off the floor to call an anonymous support hotline. Um, and so, you know, it takes a village. Um, we have to be thinking differently about wellness. Um, it's a goal here at NYC Health and Hospitals to create more unit-based ownership of well-being initiatives. Um, we have to be able to bring it to the workforce. We can't expect uh, a busy nurse or respiratory therapist or uh, a psychotherapist or physician or resident um, to, to be able to step off the floors to enter into a, a wellness room, which we created 30 of those and absolutely were utilized over 70,000 times within the first year of 2020. Um, but you know, when we look at some of the data, those that really needed it couldn't have it. So we had to think about how do you bring the services to them. So what we did was we established proactive well-being rounds or wellness rounds, uh, compassion carts. So legitimately pushing carts uh, with in-kind donations like protein bars, uh, cans of coffee, bottles of water um, to them. But to utilize that as an opportunity to, to query the, the environment, if you will, to speak right to the frontline uh, workforce members, again, clinical, non-clinical, ancillary departments and the like, um, 
to really see what's the temperature of the unit. What are their challenges right now? Is there some service recovery that we can do to support them to make their job easier? Uh, in reference to the clinical practice um, for them to actually accomplish their jobs, but also to check in with their emotional, physical, psychological, spiritual well-being, um, and then to also be able to provide resources to them at that time. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, I was able to lead some focus groups up and down the state of New York with the, the Hero New York Task Force, and that's an acronym that stands for uh, Healing, Education, Resilience, uh, and Opportunity for New York's Frontline. Um, <laughs> a mouthful. Um, <laughs> um, and I, I learned from people across public and private sector um, that uh, what was true for my own system is true elsewhere, that if you add additional steps in the way of well-being, um, that they're just going to see it as just another task, another thing to do. And um, I, I remember speaking to, to one of our workforce members. They were saying, I'm exhausted by people telling me I need to feel better. I'm exhausted <laughs> by people telling me where the resources are. And so mm -hmm. we have to think differently about this. So again, it's about bringing it closer to them. It's about building it into day-to-day -day operations uh, so it's accessible. You know, uh, I don't want to speak uh, out of um, my purview here, but I would love to see, just like in the old days, and again, smoking is bad, everyone, don't light up cigarettes, um, but there, staff members used to be able to have a, a, a cigarette break that was kind of covered um, as part of their day-to-day -day, um, you know, hours, and why are we not thinking about wellness that way as well? Um, mm. Why can't we make sure that every few hours that they have an opportunity to step off the floor outside of their lunch or dinner break, which they need to nurture themselves, but to be, be mindful, to, to exercise or do a walking um, group or uh, sit in on an emotional support debrief or just sit in a wellness room uh, to be mindful and to relax and, and tap into their breath and to connect with what their concrete needs are in that moment. We have to be thinking differently about how it can be rolled into operations. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, and that was also true for, for emotional support debriefs. So even though we were doing the, um, the proactive wellness rounds and the compassion cart and pushing it into their work environments, uh, we made sure that we did standing emotional support debriefs. So really rolling it into the forums um, or pre-existing structures that were, were there and in existence to start opening up greater dialogue around how are you? What do you need? Um, and to be able to, to emotionally debrief about what the experiences have been, whether it was crisis or not. So really making sure that debriefs uh, are in their own backyard. Uh, and again, that, that's for pharmacy, that's for radiology, that's not yeah. just for the ICUs. We can't forget all these other departments that, that have really done a tremendous job in keeping healthcare uh, working uh, in a time of great demand. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the last thing I would say is, um, assessments, surveys. Mm -hmm. We don't want our staff to feel like guinea pigs, but we want them to feel as though they are valued, recognized, and that their voice matters. They'll be the first to tell you what is working, what's not working, or what would be most beneficial to them. So we can't shy away from that. I know we all have survey fatigue, especially after the first surges across the nation about what just happened. Mm -hmm. um, but we really should be doing ongoing pulse checks. And, you know, specifically speaking for NYC Health and Hospitals, what they really appreciated um, was meal supplement programming, um, in-kind donations uh, of like the bottles of water and things I, I had just aforementioned. So, uh, you know, we took our surveys and that's what helped us map our strategic plan and priorities uh, for well-being through the second surge and now obviously uh, throughout 2021 into 2020.
Yeah, we heard so many stories of people opening up amazing lines of communication during the pandemic. And one of the things that I hope will happen as we are now moving into a place where COVID feels more better managed, um, that we'll keep those lines of communication open. Because to your point, I mean, if this is supposed to be rejuvenating and recovering and it feels like a burden, it feels counterproductive. So so it absolutely has to be driven by the by team members. Um, I also want to recognize, you know, you and I have have checked in and touched base at several points during the pandemic and at no time was your plate not completely full. Um, and so even though a lot of the focus of well-being is rightly on frontline team members, particularly clinicians and even uh, EVS and, and food services workers, leadership is a critical part of the equation, both in terms of providing support, but also getting support as leaders or as, as well-being providers. How do you view leadership's role in both providing and receiving well-being? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked that question. Um, and this was not just true for my own experience across NYC Health and Hospitals, um, but as I speak to colleagues uh, in and around uh, the city and state of New York, um, often leadership felt very left out during the pandemic. It was all about how do you help the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the patient transporters, everyone, um, you know, working directly with the patients. But as you started to see um, managers and frontline supervisors, as well as executive leadership, uh, often didn't necessarily feel as though the wellness programming was for them. Even if we communicated it that way, um, they didn't want to take the time and effort away from them being the model uh, of stoic support and power mm. and, uh, you know, calmness, um, you know, them really being uh, incredible leaders throughout probably one of the most critical and challenging time periods in their professional lives as well. Um, and so we all, I think, have a better job to do to help leadership feel as though that they are included in this. Uh, and the more that leadership and management are involved in well-being program planning, but also receiving those services, then they can advocate for it more uh, because they know the experience. Uh, and again, modeling goes a really long way. So if we start to see our executive leadership and our management partaking in emotional support debriefs um, and having their voices heard about what they think wellness could look like um, within their own uh, level of the organization, then people will follow. Um, and so, you know, we have to make sure that, that the same resources are made available to them. So while they were doing all the rounding and some of our, our leaders did the, the wellness rounds, um, the CMOs, the CNOs, the CEOs as well. Um, but who rounded on them? Yeah. Who actually stopped the CMO and the chiefs and chairs who were always checking in on their attendings and the residents? Who actually was saying, how are you? How has this affected you? Or what's, what is your personal impact and effect? Um, so, so we, I think, all can be doing a better, better job of that. Um, you know, in terms of, of leadership getting involved, I think what's really necessary is that workforce wellness is part of uh, their or our or system or facility institutional strategic goals. Um, I think leadership can really set the tone in terms of measurement of success, but also accountability around processes, outcome, and the balance of these programs. Um, and to really make sure that we're aligning uh, wellness and well-being reporting into various quality forums and governing body structures. Um, so I think holding um, the executive board over the CEOs, over the C-suites of facilities responsible for looking at this data. How are we implementing some of these well-being programs? You know, my programming, um, again, is about physiological, emotional, psychological, spiritual, financial, occupational, environmental. I'm sure I'm missing one at spiritual at this point. I might have said it already. Um, but how are we really looking at 
uh, the success of the implementation, how are we helping them get engaged, but also support that. Um, and leadership is really uh, plays an integral role in the sustainment plans um, and the continuous improvement of wellness programming. We don't want wellness to just be um, the flavor of the month. You know, in a year or two from now, as vaccine rollouts continue, I hope to, to progress, and uh, this will just be a, a deep, dark memory uh, of our nation and, and the uh, stamp on healthcare. Uh, we we can't go back to business as usual. So it's really going to take leadership to change and to accommodate the new norm um, so that it isn't a flash in the pan and that it continues to be improved and access is equitable across all tours, all departments, all disciplines and service lines. Um, we all deserve the, res the, the support and I think leadership plays a really large part in people being willing to utilize those services um, by combating self and social stigma around mental health concerns, um, and that this is uh, something that is communicated as a priority to be addressed by the organization, and that leadership has, has a role in what we were just talking about uh, a few minutes ago. Um, how can we rethink operations uh, to dedicate time to staff to participate in wellness programming? Um, and I also think it's really important for our leadership to not medicalize wellness, uh, the mm. approach doesn't always necessarily require, um, you know, escalation to a, a psychotherapist um, or, or for ongoing counseling. So well-being programming, it's, it's our duty to help open it up and to make it more uh, approachable or digestible. Um, so I think that that's generally where I would say where leadership comes into play. And I see um, leadership being those that have the opportunity to build coalitions, to make this a call to action, no matter if it's a standalone facility or a system or even just a unit, um, you know, start talking about traumatic stress crisis response and growth through those experiences and helping people see that we're not invincible, we're all vulnerable and all human, uh, and that leadership can play a large part in monitoring. So if there's a certain area that just had some sentinel events or major cases or another wave of COVID comes, that they're the ones really advocating for continued wellness programming there and to really target or implement something specific to that, and that they have an opportunity to share their story to enhance the comfort level of abilities to open up, even in meetings. This doesn't yeah. have to be an SBAR handoff between clinical shifts. It doesn't have to be in a DMS brief or a safety huddle in the morning. It could just be in, in a morning meeting with executives. How are you doing? What's affecting you? Uh, what's on your mind and in your heart? Um, and the last thing I'll say is to support the supporters. I think leadership um, at times, you know, taps the CWO or taps some wellness champions in specific areas. So just as though leadership needs to be checked in on, so do the supporters that are supporting others. Yes, I think that's a, an excellent point. And it reminds me of a story I heard from um, uh, a member of the Experience Innovation Network that was in the military who talked about when she finished her tour in Afghanistan, her general stood up in front of all of the troops and said, I am going to seek counseling um, because of this experience. And I hope all of you will too. And the, the length, you know, the, the value of that, of, of sharing that story, of sharing that vulnerability in, in terms of destigmatizing and normalizing the idea that we are all human and we do all need that support is really important. And I also do think it's a shout out. I have spoken with, uh, or an important shout out, I've spoken with a lot of wellness leaders where I can just see on their faces <laughs> the level of fatigue. Um, and we are certainly profoundly grateful for what you have led, um, but I, I hear you on that call for needing needing the support yourself, and I, I certainly hope you find it. Um, as you look ahead over the next 
one to two years. I used to ask that two to three years, but it feels like one to two years is already a, an eon now. What's your vision for what healthcare will look like and, and what will it take to make that vision a reality? Uh, what I would really like to see is wellness across healthcare being woven into the fabric uh, of the mission, vision, and values of every organization. We cannot support our patients, their family members, and the communities that we serve if we don't serve our workforce. Um, I'd really like to see um, wellness being more inclusive of social and racial equity. Um, physiological well-being. Often we leave out the body, the container, which houses our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, uh, to really see that as strategic priorities for every organization and, and talked about up and down in alignment of, of each of those organizations. I'd really like to see uh, the foundational element of emotional support debriefing actually being um, uh, something that is built into day-to-day -day practice, as I was saying before. We have to start being able to open up empathetic vulnerable and transparent conversations about the challenges that we experience and realize that that's not always, um, you know, us just sitting around saying what's wrong. We have to be able to sit with what really are the challenges to be able to look at it to say, oh, great. Okay, great. What's the solution? What's the gap we can close here? How can we improve this not only for the workforce, but for the patients themselves and see that as part of, of well-being. Um, and as you, you beautifully mentioned at the beginning of today's conversation, that quality improvement has a place within well-being so that we can really start to see this strategically approached with action planning, concrete needs assessments across organizations to say what can we implement to get it to that unit-based level that I was talking about before. Um, I, I really think that we have to do a better job about talking about death by suicide uh, and reducing some of that stigma and really talking about the vulnerabilities that we have and how uh, psychological trauma um, does not have a timeline. Uh, mm -hmm. So we might be seeing people really impacted and affected uh, throughout the next few years and then some, and just realize that there's complex traumatization. Don't forget, we're still seeing systemic racism. We're still seeing the murder yeah. of black and brown folk. So there's other things happening internationally, nationally, state and citywide, and in your own backyards, and in your own homes. Uh, right. So I want to see well-being programming being more inclusive of not having you have to split your personal self from your professional self. So if I just signed divorce papers, if I just uh, had my, a loved one, you know, um, admitted to a hospital with, with a, a chronic illness um, or terminal illness, if I had a colleague that just um, unfortunately completed suicide, I want to be able to say that there's programming for you in work while at work, even if it's outside of work, if that makes any sense. I think in this day and age, um, we're obviously now needing to be more mindful uh, of emergency preparedness. So I really want to see resilience framework rolled into the four or five phases of emergency preparedness. Um, so what will our response and how will we enhance coping skills and strategies of the workforce? How will we recover as a system and make sure that you know there's immediate support? And how does wellness come into the mitigation of uh, you know if we happen to have uh, another pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would like to see uh, in one to two years um, interdisciplinary support. I'd really like to see, you know, behavioral health services with well-being, with human resources, with emergency management and quality and safety, nursing, all these departments really come together and create either system-wide or site-specific steering teams specifically for wellness. 
um, and for that to be reported in some of the hospital-wide quality assurance or performance improvement forums, um, and for this to be ongoing discussion, um, not something that people just sit around a table and then say, okay, now it's on the wellness lead. I really mm. want people to say, I have a skin in the game because I need to be well too at work, um, right. to say that I have voice in the planning, the problem solving, the solutions and the pilots, but to be able to, to take that back to their own work environments and, and create that as part of their strategic plans, uh, goals or objectives that they need or want to work on. Um, I'd really like to see uh, more proactive and preventative well-being programming. Uh, I think throughout the pandemic, it was much more about, obviously, crisis response. Uh, mm -hmm. But how can we proactively be looking at this um, and to see more social supports put in? You know, one thing that did come up when I was doing some of those focus groups um, was that we need to build more sense of community. What unfortunately happens in the state of crisis, or fortunately, I, I should say as well, is that true characters shine when mm. experiencing adversity. And so building community and keeping community is so important. Um, and that also leads to something that I think we all have to do a better job in um, across the landscape of healthcare is, you know, there are national surveys out there right now um, showing that almost one out of every two respondents uh, of large scale surveys do not feel valued, seen, respected or recognized by their organizations. So I would really like to see well-being and wellness um, be able to have some of that work involved as well. Let's recognize the staff, let's empower their voice, let's connect with them, um, and let's continue to evolve together. Uh, lastly, I think we have a better job to do across the landscape of healthcare of collecting data, evidencing the impact effect and the need for well-being programming um, so that we can start to make changes to public uh, policy. Uh, I'd really like to see policies, protocols. Um, I'd like to see bills on the Senate floor really um, being able to support wellness programming across private and public sector um, mm -hmm. and, and to make sure that it's equitable. So it isn't just about EDs, ICUs and COVID uh, hospitals. It's also about post-acute service lines. It's also about ambulatory care clinics. It's also about community health care workers, um, right? We don't want to leave anyone out. Yeah, I've, some of the stories I've heard of what paramedics have been dealing with is just astounding and continue to deal with as we, you know, as in the background of COVID is the escalation of the opioid crisis and, and gun violence and all of those other things. So, um, yeah, not to end on that down note, I think that's a beautiful vision for, you know, it, it is an incredibly complex thing to undertake, but but what I appreciate about what you've shared is, is a recognition of the ways that it still feels like there, there's a path forward that's going to require some collaboration and some pretty universal individual ownership over wellness for, for ourselves, but also for our colleagues, our peers, if we're leaders, then for the, the teams we lead. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the goals with this podcast is to get that message out there so that more people are thinking about it in their leadership, in their process improvement, um, in their work, um, and also recognizing that well-being leaders like yourself need support as well. So I hope you feel supported. And I'm so grateful for you sharing your, your wisdom and insight both today and in all of our previous conversations. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you, Liz. It was a pleasure to be here. If you enjoyed this episode of the Caring Greatly podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. For links to resources related to Mr. Siegel's discussion, visit vocera.com podcast and click on his episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Caring Greatly podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. 
For links to resources related to Ms. Crystal's work to transform the human experience at Southlake, please go to vocera.com slash podcast and click on her episode. This is Liz Bohm, Executive Strategist for Human-Centered Research at the Experience Innovation Network, part of Vocera. Thank you for caring greatly.